They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Sagliari and this is Solve the Podcast. Welcome to Solve the Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is Paula Salwan Dahe. Paula is a Marxist feminist from the Lebanese diaspora. She's interested in feminist movement building, embodying transnational solidarity, rethinking love and relationships, poetry, writing, tattoos, books, watching her children grow, and the general witchery of life. This episode consists of two parts because I had so many questions and Paula so much knowledge to share and she made sure that nothing was left unsaid. In this first part, we speak about feminism, feminist solidarity, Lebanon, Hummus, Hamam Radio, a feminist participatory radio station Paula co-founded with her comrades and friends. We speak about tattoos and we speak about grief. Paula is fierce and loving and someone I truly admire. Welcome, Paula. I'm so happy that you're here with us today. Hi, Stella. Thank you so much for having me and for inviting me on Soul. So the first question that I always ask to my, uh, yeah, the people I speak with is, um, yeah, who are you? Who is Paula? Share a little bit about yourself with us. I, I'm glad that you start with like very easy questions. <laughs> like, who are you? <laughs> Let us start with an existential question. Um, so I I guess I am a multi-layered person, um, like we all are. So professionally, I'm the senior global advocacy advisor at the Geneva Office of the Center for Reproductive Rights. I'm also affiliated with Urgent Action Fund for uh, Women's Human Rights. I'm I'm on their board and with um, the Arab Foundation for Freedom and, e- and Equality. Also a board member. I'm a writer whenever I have time. I'm a mother. I'm a friend, a lover, a wife. Yeah, not necessarily in that order, a sister. And I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, of course, it's a very big question, but it's always <laughs> nice to get a little sneak peek into who people are. And then, of course, throughout the conversation, we learn more. I want to now talk with you about feminism because you are a fierce feminist, a wonderful feminist, a feminist that I admire. And I want to um, read out a quote from Sara Ahmed's book, Living a Feminist Life. She says in her introduction, where did we find feminism or where did feminism find us? When did feminism become a word that not only spoke to you, but spoke you? spoke of your existence, spoke you into existence? When did the sound of the word feminism become your sound? So share with us a little bit about your feminist story. So, yeah, so thanks so much for quoting her. Um, I really think that we all have her book uh, on our nightstand because it's so important. And it really is like my favorite part of the quote really is uh, when when she says, 
when did feminism speak you into existence? For me, it was really like that. So I was I was always drawn to uh, feminist issues, women's rights issues, without really knowing the difference at the time. I wasn't uh, I wasn't like a political feminist. Uh, I think in my youth, I didn't organize or mobilize around political issues yet. I think the first time that I felt like politically motivated was uh, when I was in high school and uh, um, Jean-Marie Le Pen was at the second round of the presidential election in France. And like that put me into a rage and we just started, you know, protesting. Like it was, it was spontaneous protests at the time. And this is when I think I realized that there were, there was strength in numbers. But then kind of my political education really started, I would say around 2005, 2006. I must have been maybe 20 at the time. I had like, during university, I was part of Amnesty International, like the student group. I was, you know, studying at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, international relations. I knew kind of where my political tendencies lied, and it was squarely within the left, but I wasn't part of a political party or anything. And so back in 2005, 2006, Nasawiya, uh, which was a feminist collective in Lebanon, starts getting traction. I start hearing about their work. I start getting involved. Nasawiya was organized around that kind of different initiatives. It was a very loose network. Um, it didn't turn itself into a professional NGO on purpose for political reason. And so I started kind of getting involved with them and with some of their initiatives. And then I go and I live in Beirut in 2011. And that's where I kind of joined their ranks and start really kind of my life as a militant, I would say. And I like to say that my political education was made on the streets of Beirut. And this is not an overstatement. It, this, this is really where I learned actually what it meant to be a, a feminist, like a, a, a political feminist and how to organize around issues, how to work on changing the legislative framework, but also how to harness the collective power of the masses, because then I was a feminist, but I was also, and I still am, a Marxist feminist. So for me, it was very important to kind of deconstruct the liberal mainstream construct of what feminism means. And this is kind of the, this is my house, you know, like when I say, like when when she says, when Saha Ahmed says, when did feminism speak to you into existence is, I feel that there are some words that resonate with you in a way that just others don't. And you feel, you know, when you hear them, you you have this aha moment. This is this is where I belong. So I say that this is my house and fellow feminists are my people, wherever they hail from, wherever they might be. They're parts, they're part of my heart, they're part of my house. They're my home, I guess. The mix of house and and, and heart is a home. So this is my home. And I, I realize this is a very long-winded answer for a very simple question, which was when. And I guess we can say when was early 2000. 2005, 2006, and I haven't stopped since. I'm still a raging feminist. Yes. I don't think I asked you a simple question, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you said, oh my God, you said so many things. And, and one of the things that I, and here actually 
we can also again quote Sarah Ahmed because you said I eventually found feminism or maybe I I started using the word like more consciously is when I moved to Beirut when I moved to Lebanon found it in the global south that's where you consciously said I'm a feminist right yeah and I found I found a feminism that spoke to me yes or like at the time when I was when I was I would say maybe in high school in France it wasn't It wasn't a feminism or, you know, discussions around women's rights that spoke to me as a woman of color, you know, being one of the very few, if not the only Arab, or I think there was another one. Um, so being definitely part of the visible, one of the visible minorities in France, being a young woman at the time, the discourse around feminism was very much the liberal mainstream discourse, which is the feminism that really speaks to white women, to affluent white women, that really centers and circles around issues of, you know, gender and gender imbalances and inequalities in terms of pay and access to work and access to already existing patriarchal institutions where we're having the discussion of we want, you know, more women in boardrooms, but we do not really discuss how these boardrooms are oppressive in and yes. of themselves. So, breaking the glass ceiling, right? Exactly, breaking the glass ceiling and all of that. And um, and for me, the word feminism is inherently political. And this is in Beirut that I learned that. Yes. And I also like that you mentioned from the streets, because feminism, on the one hand, of course, there's a lot of feminist theory, which is important. I mean, and it's endless, but it's also a movement. Again, Sarah Ahmed says it, feminism is something that moves you and literally moves you. And it's also activism. It's something from the street. It's from the ground. And I find it really beautiful that, that you said it. And another thing, um, you said feminism is my home. And I just, because you said it, um, because in, in my thesis that I wrote, I also talk about how feminism has been given to me by women of color, by women from the global South. And I also talked about this idea of feminism gave me a home. And um, I just want to read out a quote by Mohanty because I think it's it's so beautiful what you said because it just encapsulates everything that you said. She says, um, or I wrote in that case, feminism gave me a home, and then I'm quoting, not as a comfortable, stable, inherited, and familiar space, but as an imaginative, politically charged space in which the familiarity and sense of affection and commitment lay in shared collective analysis of social injustice, as well as visions of radical transformation. And I think this is what you described, and it's so, so beautiful. And from that, actually, I want to go to my next question. What is feminist solidarity to you? You already kind of touched upon it, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more. Um, it's interesting because I was I was actually trying to articulate what solidarity feminist solidarity is for work, you know, actually. So I think it's there's no obviously there's no one size fit all definition. So this is this is just going to be like my my interpretation of course what I'm what I imagine feminist solidarity to be. And for me it is the recognition that first of all, the recognition that patriarchy is universal and that it might impact different groups of women differently depending on their context, but that there is no one place on this earth that is exempt of patriarchy and patriarchal oppression. And I think this is very important to, to remem remember and reiterate because if you listen to mainstream 
bourgeois feminism, then patriarchy and the oppression that comes with it is just the result of the, and I quote, uncivilized societies. That there are societies of color and societies of the global south or pockets of the global south in their precious little global north countries. So I think that for me, there's this, right from the bat, there's this recognition that patriarchy um, impacts us all. This, there is a universality, unfortunately, to it. And then one of the latest examples, contemporary examples, that really gives me a lot of hope and joy, I would say, is the green wave in South America, where you have network, feminist networks, organizations, waves that have been fighting and are still fighting for reproductive justice at the national level, bearing in mind the different contexts that they have to contend with, but they have managed to create not only intersectional resistance movements, progressive movements at the national level, but are also replicating these across countries of the region. So while being very firmly enshrined and grounded in the realities of their own context, they also have managed to create a transnational network that now has been dubbed the Green Wave. And when you think about the Green Wave, you think automatically about Argentina, Colombia, Chile, and other countries of the region, because now they have created kind of this, there's also the symbol, right, of the green bandana that is kind of a uniting symbol. And so for me, there, there are more and more after, I feel that we've had a period of almost the triumph of mainstream feminism with like publications like Lean In and all of that, um, where all we, all we were talking about was just gender equality in terms of parity. And that's it. There was no more profound challenging of oppressive structure to a comeback thanks to intersectionality as a concept, amongst other things, um, of more kind of organic resistance movements that dub themselves feminist, but are also anti-capitalist, anti-racist, anti-ableist, and are like intersectional organically, like in, by the way that they were formed and, and built. Um, it's something we saw in the waves of revolutions in 2019 before COVID hit. You could see really transnational solidarity, not just feminist, but really revolutionary transnational solidarity between Chile and Lebanon and, and Iraq and other places that were fighting against repression and oppression. Um, and so for me, that was definitely that was also that was definitely an embodiment of what feminist solidarity means. Um, so I would say like to kind of sum up, I think that for me, it is coalescing around issues that, you know, struggles that we share, sharing our experiences, sharing our resources, amplifying each other's agenda, um, and being firmly, you know, polit politically, um, positioned as part of an international, an internationalist. Solidarity movement as feminists. I love what you just said. <laughs> I mean, I love how you speak in general. I love how you express yourself. Thank you. <laughs> Thank um, you. I will not say anything because we, I have many questions. <laughs> I formulated some questions more concrete and others I just put a word because I want you to be free to, I mean, in general, you can say whatever you want, but of course I want you to be just to choose what you want to say. And the next 
subject that I want to go a little bit more in depth in, and you've already mentioned it, is Lebanon. Okay. So I'm just saying Lebanon. <laughs> Thanks, Stella. <laughs> Maybe you can start with, because you didn't share that in your introduction, if I remember well, that you are actually Lebanese. I am. I, mean, I didn't Swiss say Lebanese. that. I don't think oh you did. Oh my God. Usually it's the first thing that I think to people. <laughs> I don't think Hi, I'm said it, right? No, I don't think you did. It's so <laughs> odd. What is happening to me? Um, I mean, it's something you can see on my face most of the times anyway. So, um, Lebanon. Well, I, I also like to describe myself as a Lebanese from the diaspora, which is what I am. Um, I was born to Lebanese parents in France next to the border with Switzerland. Um, and I guess Lebanon was always, you know, like I, lately I've been very interested in intergener intergenerational trauma. And what we carry from our ancestors and previous generations. And I think one of the reasons why I'm kind of obsessed with the issue of women in conflict um, is probably because of my own personal background and where I come from. And there are things I think that stay with you. And when you're born into the concept of war, just the way that I was, I think I wasn't born into war, but I my circumstances were a product of the war. Had it not been for the civil war in Lebanon, my parents would still have been in Lebanon. I probably would have had a very different life. And it's something that you carry with you as the daughter of immigrants. I think it's a mix of deep nostalgia that my parents carried and also that sadness, that underlying sadness that exile gives you. And I know that they felt some they felt that very profoundly. It was, it was something that was, you know, like my dad was always listening to the radio, always listening to what was happening on a daily basis. I remember that radio. I, I, I remember all of it. So I think it gave me an outlook on life that was very different from what my friends at school had experienced and were experiencing. I had a very different upbringing. I had a very different set of circumstances. So the first time that I saw Lebanon, that I remember, because I had been before, but that I remember I was six and it really was like the last year of the war. It was 1990. And I just remember Beirut's airport it was mess to end all messes. And I remember like looking at everything, feeling very disoriented. And then I think it just, I fell in love, I think, you know, the way that you cannot really explain, um, the way that when you fall in love with a lover, you cannot really explain why. You're, you look at that person and you're like, but you know, like, that person is just full of faults. And, and you know, most of the time, just, just look at them and, and you don't understand, but you love them just for whatever reason. And you cannot explain why. And that's, how I guess I feel about Lebanon is that deep love that I just cannot explain with in rational terms. Um, it very much feels like my emotional home. I think that Lebanon gave me everything that made my identity good and bad. Uh, it gave me war and exile. It gave me a, an incredible amount of love. Uh, it gave me a political education. It gave me family. It gave me friends. It gave me belonging. It gave me, I think, like um, 
a kind of fierceness if i if i if i can put it this way i have i have a hard time maybe explaining it but like this a, a kind of drive that i think i i owe it to this country so you know to see it the way that it is now isn't easy i've been going in and out of the country for i'm going to say it and disclosing my age too <laughs> Um, so I've been, I've been, I think the first time that I went, I was three. So for most of my life, basically, uh, for the last 34 years, I've been in and out of the country on a regular basis. And it was very traumatic. I think the last two years, uh, we started with so much hope in 2019 and to end where we are now, there is still hope. I think I still have faith and hope in my comrades that are there. Um, and the ones that even if they're outside, they're also trying to do something. But this is when hopes becomes a practice and not just simply a feeling. Hmm. It's something that you need to constantly remind yourself of because otherwise it will give way to despair. And I think that part of my political education is that you cannot afford despair, especially when you're in leftist political parties, you know, where you have to follow a certain party line, you have to decide a certain party line, you have to decide things democratically, you have to remain organized. and. And all of that doesn't really allow room for despair. Otherwise, I don't think there would be many leftists left. We're not that many to begin with. So, yeah, it, it's become it's become a, a practice uh, to keep hope and to continue to work on the country and in the country, which is what I'm trying to do with my comrades, feminist and leftist comrades. Um, because obviously nothing you can do can be an individual effort. Yeah. So I guess I could speak about Lebanon for ages, but I think sure. that those are the thoughts that are coming to mind now. Yes. And you are, I'm linking this now, you are also part um, of Hammam Radio. Yes. And this is also related to Lebanon. And yes. Maybe you can share with the listeners what Hammam Radio is all about. And also what it means to you. So Hammam is, for me, inextricably linked to my friend, my sister, my comrade, Abir Rattas. When I was saying that Lebanon gave me my closest friendships, Abir is definitely one of them. Uh, we met in 2000, I cannot even remember, 2010, I think, 2011, uh, in Beirut. And, and we haven't let go of each other ever since. And Abir has this magnificent talent to create and come up with amazing ideas and, and to rope you in into her ideas. So Hammam started as her sending me a message telling me, come listen, like, you know, the confinement is starting and people are going out of their mind. Do you want us to create a feminist radio? And it's a kind of, you know, it's a kind of idea I could never have because I have no idea about how to <laughs> a feminist radio, you know, like in terms of technologic stuff. You know, I was telling you before we started speaking on the podcast, she's been, you know, badgering me to get a better mic and I still have my crappy earphones with my with the mic and everything. So I was like, yes, all right, let me, you know. And so we create, we co-created Hammam with wonderful Palestinian women, Rasha Halwe, uh, uh, Marwa, Juju. We were all together in this. 
And we wanted to create an online space for women and non-binary and, you know, queer folks to be able to, to have a bit of a space to reclaim their own narratives. Um, so we decided that we would create a feminist intersectional radio that would be a space for creation, for love, for sharing, for presence, for music, for everything that gave us a bit of hope in this world at a time where it felt like time had stood still. And, and we really didn't know. It was like the height of the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic and there was no one on the streets. It felt very eerie and very disorienting. And we just wanted to create and carve a little community that would enable us to just create shows and invite reactions. And so this is how Hammam started. I started having a show on the radio and then I co-hosted several shows with a lot of people who came and, and share a bit of their time and their brilliance. Like we had Dina Abu Habib, we had Maya Hello. Um, we had artists come and share their music with us as well. And we're continuing. So now we have, you know, it's, it's, we've gone back to our lives. So it's more difficult to try and carve time um, to, to have some shows, but we're definitely back and we're scheduling some new shows as well. We have our Instagram account. Um, I think Hammam to me was, and still is, a a space where I could express my creativity in a way that mixed both my love for words and my love for feminism and my love for women and for queer and LGBTQ plus communities. Um, it's where it's also where like I felt home. Hamam was also part of that home. Um, I'm also obsessed with music. So it was a space where I could speak at length about feminism and then play my favorite tracks. And politically, I think that, you know, there is definitely a political role that art can play. Yes. It should play. Yes. And, and different media also should play. Like, you know, when you, when you, the, the, the mainstream media that we consume is so li liberal and, and carries so much of prejudice and bias. Um, and is also responsible for the increased inequalities that we are seeing. There's just the mouthpiece of the existing bourgeois capitalist racist order. Um, so it's, it is imperative that we actually create pirate alternative forms of media and expression and art because it's also an inherent part of resistance. And I think some of the strongest, most fiercest um, Uh, res resistant, like resistors, I don't know if that's even a word in English, but you get my idea. We're actually artists. So we also wanted to give, to give them an additional platform if we could. Yes, wonderful. Yes, I follow, just for the listeners, the Instagram account is great. So I recommend following Hammam Radio on Instagram because you, yeah, you, you speak about so many important things. And I remember when it started, Yeah, it was the beginning of the pandemic. So I, I listened to a few of the shows. And in one of them, you talked about hummus. Yes. Probably. You made me laugh so <laughs> That much. That sounds like me. <laughs> because I was like, oh my God, this woman is amazing. Just the way you express yourself, the things you come up with, the things you say. I was like, 
because I don't know if you're going to mention it now. I won't say it. Maybe you will. So if you don't, I will say it later. But I want to talk to you about hummus now. It's appropriation. It's supposedly different flavors. So maybe you can um, bring some enlightenment to people's ears about hummus. You know, you know I get extremely upset. <laughs> I feel very strongly about hummus. I know. I feel... I feel this is, and I feel like a lot of people do. There, there's this beautiful Instagram account called Hummus Rights Watch. And, you know, they just track the instances of defilement that white supremacy imposes on us. And, you know, like it started with, it just started adding weird stuff to hummus, but, you know, things in respect that maybe we could have lived with, you know, like. Paprika, or I don't know what. And now it's just it devolved into chocolate hummus and, and, and pumpkin spice latte hummus. And, and I'm like, why? Why? Hummus literally, literally means chickpea. Like most of the things, like if avocado hummus is guacamole, like you do, don't, <laughs> why? Why would you do that to us? We have, like, we haven't suffered enough. Do you think we haven't, as a people, as Middle Eastern people, you don't think we have suffered enough? So, you know, like, it's funny, and I think that there's a lot of interesting reactions on social media around hummus, but to me, it's just one example of the cultural appropriation that we are being, like, we are being subjected to, but I also want to say specifically the Palestinian people. Um, you know, like, they are living under one of the most terrible occupation. They are living in an apartheid state, and on top of it, they have to suffer the cultural appropriation of their food, of their art, of their culture um, by the occupying power. Uh, and so it, it just, it just, you know, feels like there's no, there's very little left in terms of existence, really. And so that was one of the reasons why it gets me so mad. There's a cultural appropriation part of it. It's like Hamas and Falafel are not Israeli. Let's start with that. And the, the, the other thing is how, you know, I think white supremacy just takes and takes and takes whatever it wants to take from us, except seeing us as human beings. Like if, if you see how Arabs and, and people from the region are portrayed, treated at borders, you know, discriminated against, but taking, taking our food is okay. You know, appropriating our food is okay. Defiling our food is okay. Um, and everything, and it's not just people from our region. You know, I also see that happening with other cultures and other regions in the global south. But you can also see how it just, it, it just feels like we are not be, being seen as human. But at the same time, they have absolutely no problem making themselves appear as if they are discovering something. Like they've discovered frike as a superfood, you know, something that our grandmothers used to make. And now frike is everywhere in every kind of hip American cookbook or whatever. Oh, what is it? I don't know about frike. it. Frike is like cracked wheat. Um, okay. It's kind of green wheat and it's very good for you. It is, but it, there is something that, you know, has existed as a staple in, in Lebanese cuisine, but I also think more broadly in Middle Eastern cuisine. Actually, the first time I tasted it, I think was in Syria. And, and now, it, but it's a very kind of traditional, you make very traditional dishes with it. 
And it has been now discovered, like if, if you if you read the articles and the blog post about Trike, for instance, is this thing apparently, oh, you know, the superfood, like quinoa, you know. Yeah. They're doing the same thing over and over again. It's like, you know, the people and the cultures that produces that produce these dishes and use it, use this type of food are to be seen as alien, are to be seen as people to be discarded, are to be seen as people that need to prove their existence as human beings all the time via renewing permits, via asking, getting humiliated. You know, like one of my favorite actually anti-racist signs I saw that I saw these signs in many demonstrations. Like we give you falafel, have some respect. It's just like all the falafel that and all the avocado toasts and all of the the the, the hummus and all of the frike that they are over consuming. It's like they're completely divorced from the culture that produced them and brought them to global north countries. So yeah, it deeply doesn't. It doesn't sit right with me. And I know that, you know, there's the ongoing conversation around culture is not something that is fixed. And, you know, you have cross-pollinations amongst cultures. And that is 100% correct. But to counter the argument of cultural appropriation with, you know, culture are not fixed and there's cross-pollination, blah, 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 is, is skewing the issue of power dynamics. You can talk about culture being fluid and different cultures adapting to different contexts and you know like the mix of cultures and that and that never-ending movement that is life really and that no one is fighting against but you have to acknowledge power dynamics that exist between different groups of people when you have systemic oppression and systemic discrimination against certain groups of people and then you're kind of claiming their culture as your own or you're claiming their culture what you like about their culture, yet discarding them and discarding everything else that belongs to them with the power dynamic of, you know, one side has all the power and the other is being made powerless, then there's an issue that you need to, it's a political issue that you need to contend with and you need to address. So it's not as easy as saying, you know, you're being Dayatollah of Hamas, which by the way, I think is a very cool term that I would gladly claim. Um, but it's also, if I didn't have to ask you for papers to stay on your soil, maybe I would let you put chocolate in my hummus. Things being what they are, I will not let you do. Yes, absolutely. I absolutely agree. And I had to think about, I, I guess you have these blankets too. When I was young and I still have those blankets from my mom, these really thick blankets with some crazy colors and weird flowers and patterns, yeah, and know, like yeah, yeah, we have them. whatever you know. But this is like this is my childhood. These are the blankets that my mom used to wrap around me. My grandma, you know, mm-hmm. my grandma gave them to my mom. Blah blah blah. And I think I don't know which which fashion house was it, but suddenly oh, they I were making that. bags of it or like coats. And then I'm thinking, oh wow! So if the woman in the village has these blankets, it's considered old fashioned or savage or whatever. But if Gucci makes a bag out of it, it's suddenly fashionable, you know? Mm-hmm. So that also goes in line with what you said about hummus. Yeah, yeah. And it's also part of the capitalist system, right? Taking certain oh, things and then you create a fancy marketing around it. And then it's not just hummus because it's not enough. Of course, capitalism has to create many things. And then it's avocado hummus. 
and pumpkins hummus and as you said maybe i think you said in the in the radio straziatella hummus yes so, i just saw that no, yeah. <laughs> but yeah you know capitalism needs to create needs that you actually don't need because yeah. otherwise it died yeah and capitalism really doesn't want to die despite our best efforts yes 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 so we talked about the hummus <laughs> <laughs> and paula People who listen probably don't know, but you have a lot of tattoos. I and no, is nine a lot? I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I don't know how many you have, but I know I have nine about them, and I know that they are very. They're not just tattoos. Every tattoo has a very deep meaning. Um, yeah, they are very very special to you. I'm not saying the tattoos are not special to other people, but yeah tattoos i'm just saying tattoos i, I didn't want to say actually anything else tattoos. oh my god we can be there until tomorrow yes so it's true that all of my tattoos have very specific meanings for the, for me i have nine and counting i don't think i will stop at nine um my latest one is um next voto the sacred heart and all of them serve serve a purpose first of all i think All of my all of my tattoos and tattoos generally for me serve a specific purpose of something about the relationship that I have with pain. And I I know I had I had deep meaningful conversations about a friend of mine who also has like she has even way more tattoos than I do. And she said to me before I got my first one because I was you know I was scared about the pain. And she said to me. Yes, but listen, actually that pain serves a purpose. Whatever you feel and whatever pain you feel inside goes through that needle. And the physical pain that you feel instead is also very therapeutic. And she was right. Like my first tattoo is my daughter's names in Arabic calligraphy. It was very painful because there's a lot of filling and everything. and my skin broke and I changed tattoo artist since that one, but it was my very first one. And it was, it was my, my daughters and there was no pain associated with them. Um, I have to say, but it was, it was kind of this magical moment where I felt that I was also reclaiming my body. So for me, it's like tattoos are, are a way to experiment pain in a way that for once it's a pain of your own choosing. For once you decide to inflict on you physical pain because there is something within you um, that has trouble coming out. Like I've always had issues with vulnerability and I'm not good at dealing with internal pain. Um, emotional pain. I think I, I have issues handling emotional pain. And so for me to feel the pain of the needle on my skin, it helps me process whatever needs process. Uh, one of my favorite tattoos I have on my back, it has been designed by an amazing illustrator who also has an Instagram account. Uh, her name is Rana Zahir. And she also loved um, Tarot, like I do, by a happy coincidence. When we were designing the the tattoo, we started talking about that because the tattoo is in the shape of the star, Tarot card. And the woman who is traditionally on the, on the card is represented by the goddess Ishtar. 
And that tattoo is very intricate and took four hours, I think. Um, and for me, I think that was the longest sitting I did. And it was the first time I think that I cried during a tattoo. Um, but it wasn't because of the pain. The pain was something else. Like I was, I was very much in pain, but the tears that came were very profound, deep tears that had actually very little to do with the physical pain that I was feeling. Um, but the physical pain allowed for those tears to flow. And I think that's what I like. It's like that physical pain allows for some inner blocks that whatever inner block that I might have at that specific moment to be eased a little. So I think that that's one of the main reasons why I love tattoos. And I think the other thing is the tattoos that I've chosen for myself, all of them remind me of something or someone um, that just made somehow their way, I think, into my heart and into my life. And they work as talismans that I want to keep them close. So I have my daughters, I have my nieces, I have my mom, um, I have my, my mother-in-law, I have sister like i have i have a lot of of beloved people that are etched on my skin and i have some reminders you know like a reminder to be persevering um that was designed by a friend of mine so i also like that about that particular tattoo um a reminder that you know the the sacred heart is a reminder of everything it goes back to my childhood childhood my grandmother um the way she always was lighting uh, a candle to the sacred heart of Jesus. But it was also like, it's a reminder of unconditional love outside of religion, I think, and spirituality. The sacred heart for me really is a symbol of the power of the heart. And even if your heart has been beaten down, that it's still capable of love. And at the end of the day, for me, that's the most important thing. Be it, you know, romantic love, friendship love, political love, I think there is love to be put in everything at all times, even though it's not easy and you can get bruised and beaten and battered in the process. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I love how they feel on my body and I love their meaning and, and I love how the particular pain helps me deal with what I have to deal with. Beautiful. Thank you for, for sharing this. I don't think I've ever heard someone talking like this about tattoos. Wow. Grief, Paula. Oh, God. My God. <laughs> what is that? I changed the questions a bit. I think it's good how we move. <laughs> Maybe before you start, because mm -hmm. it's, it's heavy. Yeah. I, I love how you write, but you have a blog. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. we also didn't mention this. Um, yeah. Your blog? I have a blog called Mirror and Mint. Yes, forever, I, actually, for a long time, no? I, yeah, yeah, for a long time. I, I used to be more active on it than I am now, but I keep it because sometimes I, I want to write stuff and it's just a place for me to share it. So I still keep it. Um, and it's true that I've written a lot about grief um, and that I've, I've published these articles on there. Um, it was a good outlet, I think, writing to process grief. Um, I think grief is an intensely, it's probably the most isolating experience that I've ever had. Um, I think it's something that is inherently and intensely personal. 
um, and not two people grieve in the same way. I think my mistake as I was grieving the loss of my mother was to think that I could do it by myself. And it's interesting because I was just talking about how my political education was made and everything was centered around the collective. But when I had one of the most difficult experiences of my life, I retreated back and couldn't find my way out. And so I think one of the most important things is if someone is grieving, even though it might be very difficult to reach out, is and you don't have to um, reach out, actually. There will always be people, I think, that will stand by you, waiting for you to come out on the other side. But to remind yourself sometimes that there is, as much as there is political power in the collective, there's also a lot of comfort in the collective and in communities. And that can really help with the grieving process. Um, which is something that I didn't do, that I'm learning to do. Um, grief. I feel like you can grieve so many things. Um, I used to hate it. And I've developed a new relationship with it. And it's not, it's not because of therapy or whatever. Um, I think it's just through experience that I've learned that particular, re- that particular lesson um, it's just, it's simply love that has nowhere to go. It's just, you find yourself with like unfinished business a lot of the time and very strong feelings. And you're like, where, what do I do with, with those now? Cause grief can be linked to death, but you can also grieve relationships. You can grieve past versions of yourself. I feel like I've had all of them. which is interesting. But as a mother, I had to grieve the person that I was before becoming a mother because it's such an all-consuming role, you know? And I know you do know. Um, So you lose yourself a little, especially when they're very small at the beginning, when they're very little babies and their whole life depends on you, depends on you. So you, you you grieve who you were. And when you lose someone you love, you also grieve that person. When your relationships and you grieve whatever love you had with a specific person. So there's a lot. And, and I feel like there's a lot, lot, a lot of grief going around um, with COVID, with war, with the general dumpster fire that the world is. At the moment, there's a lot of grief. And I don't think we're very good at grief. And it's okay. We don't need to be. You know, like there's no, um, there's no trophy for being good at grief, but I do feel that there needs to be more conversation around it Um, because people tend to feel very alone until someone speaks about it. And it's something, it's actually interesting that you mentioned the blog because this is a reaction that I had a lot of reactions that were similar to yours, where people would message me privately and say, thank you for writing this. You know, I've just lost my mom or thank you for writing this for whatever reason, because I needed, I needed to find resources that spoke about grief and, and people usually find like psychological studies and very scientific things or personal accounts that didn't really speak to them. And so I think the more accounts and narratives around grief that are put out there, the better for all of us, because it can, you never know, you know, it can always help someone. Some, it might not resonate, but it can always help someone. 
So I wrote the articles that I wish I had found for me. And it's something I think, and just to say lastly, I think grief is not something that goes away. Not in my experience. It's just because it's love and love doesn't go away. You can, you know, you can end a relationship by death or by separating from someone. The love is still there. Whatever circumstances were put on your, when you love someone, you love someone. The love doesn't go away. You just learn to build your life around that loss. Um, That's it. You continue with your life and, you know, your life is shaped by everything that happens to you. And you just add a new shape that takes the form of loss and grief and you continue, but it's part of you now. Yes. I can only resonate what you said because I, when I was looking at your blog, actually the the blog posts that I read were the ones about grief. And I was like, wow. And, And because my partner also lost his father also to cancer, also at a very young age, it has been extremely traumatic for him. And a lot of this he kept inside, like exactly what you just described. And you've written this article, Stillness, uh, the, the blog post Stillness, that you devoted to Camilia, I think it probably is yeah. our common friend. Yeah. Um, and I shared it with him because what you wrote there for me was like, wow, I, 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 I shared this article, this blog post with him and I said, please read it. And I shared it also with another woman. Um, I mean, I wanted to tell you that in person um, in the US who also lost a friend to cancer, way too young, a mother of four. Um, and I also shared this blog post with her. And I think it's it's really true what you say. I mean, having read, I don't know if I read them all, but everything you've written about grief to me is like, yeah, I think you've written things that that you don't find so easily. Like it's it's really true what you're saying. And you've also written about, um, because I read them when when I prepared our conversation about when your mother passed away that you were wearing this shirt, right? Mm-hmm. And then it stayed in, in the closet. Yeah, you will not there. wear it again. But Mm-mm. just the way you're writing, um, the words you're choosing, what you said, love, uh, grief is love that has nowhere to go. If you think about it, you know, like what you also just described, I don't think we're having these kind of conversations. You You don't hear these things often, the way you put things into words and um, yeah, I want to thank you for that. Really. Thank you. Um, Thank you for saying that. I actually, that's why I looked on the right. Um, I I, I wanted to read out a part of your blog um, from this blog post stillness, but I actually want people who, who listen, I want them to go to Mir and Mint and I will of course link it as well on, on my social media, but I want them to go there and spend some time with your words because yeah, there is a lot there, a lot, whatever you're looking for, you will find it there. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paula, for having this conversation with me, for being so open and honest. And thank you also to everyone for listening to part one of my conversation with Paula. Part two is in the making. In the meantime, follow Hamam Radio Go to Paula's blog, Mir and Mint, and spend some time there. There's so much to read and so much to learn. And share this episode in your socials. Something that is loved is never lost. I'm Stella Salieri, and this is Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast.